Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. First of all, I've got to thank our cousins at the No Sleep Podcast for giving us a shout-out on Season 8, Episode 22. Thanks for that no sleep. Now, in it, we were described as unadorned, which is particularly correct when compared to No Sleep's highly polished production. Early on, I toyed with the idea of increasing production with some sound effects or voice effects and regularly doing multiple narrator reads, much like No Sleep. But I ran that idea past a few listeners, and the response was negative. Turns out that our charm, and I hadn't even realized it. Aside from a few special episodes, we really want Tales to Terrify to be delivered, as if the person in the passenger seat of the car was reading to you to keep you awake on a long car trip at night. We wouldn't dare want you to fall asleep, so no sleep at this podcast either, I suppose. Anyway, I appreciate the adjective of unadorned. Thank you, No Sleep Podcast. Now, this week, if you're listening to this as it's released, I'll be in Natural Bridge, Virginia, which is in Rockbridge County. The name for both of them comes from a 90-foot expanse of rock over a gorge. They love that thing down there. If you've saved this episode for the weekend, on Saturday I'll be in Stanton at the Blackfriars Playhouse for a production of Romeo and Juliet. I'm a sucker for Shakespeare, but can't quote any of the bard's lines at all. I hope your weekend will be as interesting as mine. To keep you occupied, we've got a couple stories for you. Casey Cook's work has been previously published in The Little Patoxent Review, 365 Tomorrow's Dime Show Review, The Muse, and 20-something Magazine. She received her MFA in 2006, and her day job is teaching composition to college students. Amusingly, she's an utter scaredy cat. 
She loves writing horror, but cannot watch or read it without having nightmares. So she'll be up watching cartoons for a couple hours after this podcast. Children of the Night, listen with me to Casey Cook's Still Hungry. Wing D of the Robotics Research and Recovery Institute mimicked a mental health facility in every way. The robots under observation there had been programmed to believe they were human and afflicted with a human disorder, air eating. What was once a fringe disease now affected whole cities. And after millions of human lives were lost due to self-starvation, 3RI hoped to find finally a cure. They tested reset the robots and treatment protocols, and tested again. Thirteen months later, the robots admitted they were hungry. A human researcher walked around tables in the common room. All around him, robots were eating. Most were tentative, but many ate with gusto. The researcher made a note to increase the frequency with which their biomechanical stomachs were emptied. He stopped here and there, checking for unexpected effects of the treatments. Hello, Nine he said. Nine, who had been looking out over the room, turned to him and smiled. Her gelatin cup remained untouched. Aren't you hungry? Nine looked down at her cup. Something about the way it wiggled bothered her. I'm not hungry for this. Interesting, the researcher said, taking notes. What are you hungry for? Nine looked back out into the room. She watched the others intently. Two and thirteen in particular caught her eye. An orderly opened a window and nine was mesmerized by the way the light highlighted the freckles on thirteen's skin. Something else, she said. Let's eat this for now, the researcher reasoned. We can try something else for dinner. Nine turned back to her cup. She dug in and ate a large scoop. The gelatin slid and split against her teeth. It turned to liquid in her mouth, and she grimaced. That bad, huh? the researcher asked. She swallowed. I want something I can chew. Once the lights were out, Nine opened her eyes. She was programmed to desire sleep, and, as a concession to her robotic nature, to desire plugging in to regenerate. But tonight she desired neither. As there weren't any cameras in the room, no one came to remind her. She watched her roommate, 16, deep in her own regeneration cycle. She watched her eyelashes flutter and her fingers twitch. What are you dreaming about? Nine whispered. Nine slid out of bed and sat down on the floor beside 16. She put her chin on the pillow, her mouth inches away from her roommate's. 16 shifted in her sleep and a few pieces of hair fell onto Nine's face and into her slightly parted mouth. Nine closed her lips around them, trying to suck all of the taste from each strand. No, she whispered. She pushed backward, her hand still gripped around Sixteen's mattress. Let go, she told them. Her hands shook as she forced herself to get back in her own bed. The next morning, Nine ate with an intensity that delighted the researchers. She ate the next meal, and the next and the next. Everyone was thrilled at the size of her servings. She was even asking for seconds and thirds. In fact, she ate so voraciously, the researchers temporarily deactivated her to affix her with a new, larger stomach. 
She surpassed their highest hopes. She was always hungry. Nine hadn't regenerated in two full weeks. She wanted to sleep, but when she went to plug in, something stopped her. She would wait until sixteen was sleeping, then get up in bed and stare. Tonight she crawled onto the floor and over to sixteen's bed. Carefully she pulled sixteen's shirt back, exposing a soft-looking stomach. She leaned closer and licked the flesh along her roommate's side. Then she opened her mouth and bit. The moment her teeth pierced, sixteen jolted up in her bed. Nine ripped a piece away as she skittered to the other side of the room. As she chewed, she tasted something unexpected. She watched sixteen, who was cowering in her bed, still woozy with sleep. Nine realized it wasn't blood seeping from sixteen's new wound. It was quinite. But robots use quinite, Nine said, confused. She turned the flesh over in her mouth, trying to understand. It was hard and cold, like some sort of rubber. She spat it out. It's synthiskin, she said, disgusted. She gave Sixteen an accusatory look, and Sixteen recoiled. Immediately, Nine rushed her, pinning her against the bed and shoving a hand against her mouth to prevent her screams from being heard. Where is it? Nine whispered, urgent. She bit at Sixteen's cheeks and shoulders. Where is it? She tore the synthiskin from her collarbones and ribs. Each frenzied bite was more of the same. She spit each one out and kept searching. Nine pulled her apart, tearing at her joints and bones. She searched Sixteen's abdominal cavity for anything flesh, fat, blood. But there was nothing human there. She stopped. She picked Sixteen's head up, now partially severed, and looked deep into the robot's eyes. Where is it? But by now, overcome with fear, Sixteen had deactivated. Nine opened her door and padded out into the hallway. She hugged herself and shut her eyes. She rocked forward and back on her heels. I'm so hungry, she whimpered. Then she stopped. It'll be okay, she whispered to herself. She straightened her back and looked down the hallway. There were eleven other doors. You'll be full soon. She started with the door farthest from the researcher's office so as not to be heard. By the time she got to the eleventh door, her skin shone with quinite. Her nightshirt and pants were weighted down as if they'd been dunked in a barrel of the blue liquid. Her bare feet were covered, leaving a trail that slimed thicker and thicker as she moved from one door to the next. She picked her teeth and spat little pieces of synthiskin onto the floor. As she opened the last door, something on her arm glinted. She wiped her palm on her shirt and tried to get a better look. She took a few steps out into the middle of the hallway, directly underneath the one fluorescent light that stayed on. She saw that she'd been clawed. One of them had managed to slice her clean down to the bone. She tried to pull her skin back together, but it only peeled farther away, revealing the same elidium frame she had found in every robot so far. She dropped her hand. No, she whispered. No. She pulled her skin off the frame until her entire arm structure was exposed. She held it, turning it over and over in the light. Above her, a camera swiveled down. She looked up to it. I'm like them, she said. 
aren't I? A robot, she growled. I'm a robot. Her artificial brain surged with the new information. Robots don't get hungry. Robots can't hurt humans. Robots don't get hungry. Robots can't hurt humans. Robots don't get hungry. Robots can't hurt humans. The two night researchers on duty came out of their suite and met her in the hallway. They walked slowly towards her with cautious smiles. She closed her eyes. Robots don't get hungry. Robots can't hurt humans. Robots don't get hungry. Robots can't hurt humans. Then something clicked off inside her. She opened her eyes. Are you okay, Nine? The first researcher asked. Why are you out of bed? Asked the other. They walked closer to her, and she ran her tongue along her top lip. She sucked on her teeth. She tilted her head to the side and smiled. I'm still hungry. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was Casey Cook's Still Hungry, as read by C.J. Plug. C.J. has her master's from Washington University in St. Louis and has worked in the mental health field for 20 years. She grew up in the Midwest and does not remember a time when she didn't love reading a good book. Between family life, education, and career, time has become a precious commodity and leisurely reading a guilty pleasure. Listening to audiobooks became the perfect substitute during long commutes to work. C.J. was always curious about how readers for audiobooks were selected and secretly desired to be one, but that seemed as ludicrous as dreaming of a career in Hollywood or Nashville. When her daughter told her about LibriVox, it was a perfect fit. A community committed to transferring public domain works into audio format, eager for volunteers, non-judgmental, and free. 
TJ has been enjoying listening to completed works and reading for LibriVox since July of 2014. You can find her works and many more at LibriVox.org. Search for reader CJ Plug, long O, or G.I.B. Here Too. CJ appreciates the opportunity to read for Tales to Terrify and hopes you enjoy the story. Thank you as always, CJ. Link to her LibriVox page will be in the show notes. Our second story for the night will be a bit longer and comes from a very familiar face. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning short fiction author, editor, and podcast narrator, recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best New Talent in 2014. His science fiction, dark fantasy, and horror short stories have been published in numerous venues around the world, including Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Starship Sofa, and The Mammoth Book of Dieselpunk. His vocal talents have been heard on such podcasts as Starship Sofa, right here at Tales to Terrify, Plan B, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Together with Lee Murray, he co-edited the anthology Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, winner of the 2014 Sir Julius Vogel for Best Collected Works and the 2014 Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work, and At the Edge in 2016, a collection of Antipodian dark fiction. In 2017, Hounds of the Underworld Book One of the crime-slash-horror series, The Path of Ra, co-written with Lee Murray, will be released by Raw Dog Screaming Press. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Link will be in the show notes. Lend me your ears for a little story about zombies. Dan Raybart's Children of the Tide. The crack in the window let in the ghosts. They came with the night breeze, whistling their morning songs and carrying with them the stink of rotten water that lay across the paddocks, down past the crooked fence that bent and bowed where the earth had sunk away to let the sea creep closer, where the salt ate the grass brown, then grey, before the water swallowed it up. Morgan didn't fear the ghosts, not any more. They didn't eat much, no more than thin slices of his soul, like dry skin flaking away, the used and barren parts, the brittle things, that were no longer any use to him. Memories of bone and blood and heart, of lost things forgotten. People, mostly, from days when there were no ghosts, no rotten sea, no creeping death and the things that lurched up from the water under night shadow to feed. For Morgan, nights were fucking little Sarah close, keeping her warm and safe. For half sleeping, half watching, half dreaming. For never forgetting everything Dad had told him before Dad hadn't come home. About always looking out for yourself first. About not trusting anyone. About never, ever going out after dark. He didn't know why the dead ones feared the light. And now there was no one left who could tell him, anyway. All he had left was Sarah. And Dad's lessons about finding and storing food and water. About where to hit a man with a hammer so he doesn't get back up and how the dead ones might be able to sniff you out, but they're slow, damned slow. So don't try to fight them, just run away, but not so fast that you get puffed and they catch you up. Dad had all the answers. Dad knew how to survive. But Dad hadn't come home. So Morgan watched the night, and listened, and slept and dreamed, and woke shivering, 
and check that little Sarah was warm and safe, like Dad would have done, because Dad had loved Sarah, loved her more than him, he was sure. Now it was Morgan's job to love her. Rule number two, always look after your family. Yourself first, then family. And don't trust anyone else. The dead ones didn't come that night. The sky began to lighten, and Morgan finally slept, deep and hard, until Sarah shook him awake, giggling, with sun slicing through the cracks around the roofing tiles, and she stole away down into the dark recesses of the house, with its boarded windows, in search of breakfast. They had a little food, and Morgan hoped it would be enough. Dad had had a plan to get them out of here, he knew, but there were details of that plan that Morgan didn't know. The boat was on the trailer, hidden somewhere on the farm, loaded with a stockpile of food and water and medicine. Dad had planned on taking the boat down to the water, but he had gone off in search of something the day he hadn't come home. Something he couldn't leave without. As Morgan rolled out of the blankets and made his way down the rope ladder into the house, he wondered about the ghosts and hoped that Dad was with them. The alternative was too awful to contemplate, that Dad now walked with the dead, so with the dawn he stumbled down to the waters that lapped ever higher up the hillsides, brine poisoning the once fertile paddocks, and went to sleep among the shifting currents only to stumble forth once more when evening fell, dripping and rotten and hollow-eyed, water slopping from his gaping mouth. They were all mad, Dad had said, these people fleeing into the hills to escape the rising seas, to escape the dead. Seas weren't going to stop rising, Dad had said, just running away from the inevitable whatever that meant. Better to plan for the worst, and so that's what Dad had been doing. Planning. He'd been planning ever since Mum disappeared. Morgan wondered if, for all his planning, he couldn't bring himself to actually up and leave until he knew what had happened to her. In the kitchen, Morgan found Sarah at the fridge, the door open and the light off. Neither the fridge nor its little bulb had worked since the power went out weeks ago, but the box still kept things cool. No milk, Sarah whined. Morgan forced a smile and rubbed her head. Come on, let's go see Bess. She bobbed up and down, clapping, and they pulled on their gumboots and trudged out of the house into the morning mist with the buckets. The ghost slipped sideways past Morgan's eyes when he wasn't looking. He should have eaten. He needed to sleep. But he had responsibilities now. The ghosts rushed past his ears sometimes, and he felt their flutters pass over his heart. But Sarah wanted milk, so they needed Bess, and then there were jobs that needed doing. It was going to be a long day. Morgan wished Dad would come home. Then he remembered what Dad might be now, and hoped he never did. They let Bess roam the top paddock. Better if she wasn't tied up, Dad had said. Too easy for them to get her, he said. But she was a good goat, came when they banged the bucket and popped her head through the stanchion without a fuss. Best damn tempered goat you'll ever meet, Morgan quipped, hearing his father's voice echoing in his own, then set to the unpleasant task of cleaning Bess's teats and pulling down the milk while Sarah held out grapevine leaves for her to chew on. There was only a sliver of moon when the sound of a foot stepping into mud roused Morgan from his half-sleep. At first he wondered if he had heard it at all, because it didn't repeat. But then, he couldn't be altogether sure what he could hear, with a sudden thumping of blood in his ears. As the quiet stretched out, though, 
he began to think. It wouldn't be the dead. They didn't come sneaking through the dark, nor lose their nerve when they stepped in a bog. Had it been the dead coming upon their silent farm cottage on the hillside, they would have made all the noise of a herd of cattle, feet dragging through the slough, and mouths muttering small hungry moans, uncaring of who saw or heard them. So, presuming Morgan hadn't dreamt the sound, which he was fairly sure he hadn't, though for all he knew it may have been the ghost toying with him, that could only mean that there was someone alive out there. And that, Dad had told him, was even worse than the dead. Living folk were cunning, and hungry in their own ways. Living folk were scared, and desperate, and greedy, and wanted to take everything you had for their own. Just like it had been before the dead, and the rising seas, and everything that had followed, it just meant the stakes were higher, and the reward slimmer, whatever Dad meant by that. Maybe, Morgan had wondered, it meant like how people might kill you for your goat these days, when in the old days they'd only kill you for your money. Something about how what people valued had changed. How in the old days, Morgan would have beaten up any kid who pushed his little sister, but now if anyone came nearer, he'd plant a hammer in their eye. Because it's what Dad would have done. Because it was what he'd watched Dad do, more than once. The noise came again. Morgan eased from under the blankets, shivering in the cold, and moved silently across the boards he had laid out in the ceiling to go from one crack in the tiles to the next, looking for danger. Dark shapes, three, maybe four, hunched over to make themselves smaller in the thin moonlight, crept across the lawn. Morgan's stomach twisted. As quickly and quietly as he could, he slipped across the beams and eased the cover back over the hole in the ceiling, then lifted the fence post over it. The wood made a rough dragging noise as he lowered it down, and he bit his lip, hating himself for not setting the cover before he slept. But Sarah sometimes got up in the night to go and pee, and he had gotten tired of having to get up and move it for her in the dark. He had become lazy, and it might have gotten killed. Dad wouldn't have been pleased. He crouched there, shivering, listening to the sounds of the house, the sound of Sarah sleeping, and hoped that the intruders hadn't heard. Hoped they were too scared, or too dumb, to figure out that someone might be hiding in the ceiling. He shuffled back to where Sarah lay, pulled up the blankets and wrapped his arm over her. In his other hand, he gripped the hammer. Listened as they tried the door, found it locked, forced it open. Listened as they prowled the house, one room to the next, saw the sweep of torches occasionally flare through the gaps around a downlight. Listened as the intruders tipped out drawers, opened cupboards, opened the fridge. Tried to overhear words as they gathered in the kitchen to talk in low, indistinct voices. Listened as they left the house. Listened to the broken door banging in the breeze. Later, though how much later Morgan didn't know, he must have slept. Waking and sleeping were becoming a blur, a shadowland haunted by the ghosts that whispered through the ceiling tiles and his fears of things made flesh, fractured visions that sought to decipher what it meant that the ghosts spoke to him, that they tried to draw him down to join them. Morgan sat upright, startling himself from the dream. Sarah was still sleeping, peaceful like nothing had happened in the night, like their home hadn't been invaded and ransacked. He moved around the roof space, checking each of his vantage points for signs of the intruders. They hadn't camped on the lawn, at least, but that was all he could tell. They might be under the eaves, or in the trees at the edge of the top section, or they might be gone, 
he couldn't find out without going down into the house, and he was afraid to do that in case they were lurking on the porch. But why would they wait? The intruders were running from the dead. They should have left this place behind them just as quickly. Morgan knew there was something important, something he wasn't thinking of that he should, something Dad would have thought of. But all he had were the hollow whispers of the ghosts in his ears, the heaviness in his limbs and his eyelids, the desire to sleep, warring with the fear of it. Morgie? He jolted awake. Sarah was shaking him. He'd nodded off, just sitting there by the ladder. Dumbass. Hey, Bubba, he mumbled. I need to pee. The fence post seemed awfully heavy this morning, where last night it had felt as light as bamboo. Maybe, in the night, the ghost had helped him lift it, he thought vaguely, and maybe now they were all sitting on top of it. It made sense, and suited their cruel and capricious natures. Sarah dropped down the ladder and disappeared towards the toilet. Fuzzy with sleep, Morgan descended the steps more slowly. He went to the front door, which stood open, the latch torn off where the wood had been splintered, maybe by a crowbar or an axe. He pushed it shut. He'd have to fix it later on. He didn't want to see the mess they might have made of the bedrooms. He heard the toilet flush and the sound of Sarah's running footsteps. Always running, Sarah was. She never walked anywhere. Bess, she yelled oblivious to the mess about the house, and he heard the back door open. Damn them. They must have gone out through the top paddock and left the gates open. Didn't they know anything about walking across a farm? Always leave the gate the way you found it. It's just the rules. Maybe it was absurd to think that people might follow rules at all anymore. But if not for dark times like this, when the world was falling to pieces, then what good were rules at all? He walked back to the kitchen in a daze, hunger gnawing at his stomach, coupled with an incessant dread that the intruders would have found and taken all his food reserves. Cupboards and drawers hung open. Some of the food was gone, but they hadn't found all the secret hiding places that Dad had made, all the little corners and nooks where they'd stashed away supplies for just such an event. He allowed himself a smile. It was over. They were gone, and he and Sarah could go back to planning the escape Dad had laid out for them. He opened the fridge. The glass jug of goat's milk stared back, quarter full. The ghost's constant moaning hit a screaming crescendo in his ear at the sight, a soundless warning that stripped the air from his lungs. His heart skipped up a beat, his throat suddenly tight as all the awfulness his dad had warned him about rushed up to choke him. There were already tears in his eyes as he turned to run for the back door, even as he heard Sarah's screams. They had seen the milk, tasted it, drank most of it, knew it was fresh. They had seen the kid's gum boots, still wet with new mud, by the door. They had seen Dad's boots, dry and piled in the corner, long unused. They knew the kids were alone, hiding somewhere in the house. They had found Bess. They knew what it was, to bait a trap. Morgan barely saw the three bearded men as he sprinted across the muddy lawn, the hammer raised, an animal cry on his lips. Not Sarah, not his sister... She was all he could see, her eyes wide with terror, one of the men's ropey forearms wrapped around her neck, his hand in her hair, pulling her head back, her feet kicking off the ground. Put it down! Morgan screamed as he charged. He didn't see the blow that took him on the side of the head, and left him sprawled in a senseless heap in the grass, the hammer falling softly into the mud. It was getting dark when he awoke, but not so dark that he couldn't see her. They had laid her head by his, 
so that it would be the first thing he saw when he awoke. Blood stained her white skin, her throat slashed wide, and her mouth hanging open in a rictus to greet him. He screamed and rolled away, overwhelmed by the stink of offal, and vomited hot acid which burned his throat. After the heaving in his chest eased, he spat bile from his mouth, took several deep breaths, and turned back to the corpse. They had taken her legs, spilled her guts onto the mud. Bess, he breathed. Only take that which will keep you alive, Dad had said. The intruders knew this lesson too. Morgan swayed to his feet, his head spinning. There was dry blood in his hair, maybe his own, maybe Bess's. Maybe Sarah's. Sarah. They had taken Sarah, they had lured her out with Bess, then killed the goat and butchered her for her meat. If that was what they would do to a goat, then what would they do to his sister? Why go to the effort of kidnapping a little girl? Morgan's thoughts turned black. He may have been young, but his father had not allowed him the luxury of remaining a boy in this world devolved beyond innocence. He knew all the reasons cruel men might want to possess a little girl. Dad had told him, not to scare him, not to pervert him, but so that he knew the importance of protecting his little sister. And he had failed. Morgan had seen the magazines that the older boys sometimes brought to school and passed around surreptitiously on the field where no teachers could see. He knew what men did to women, and the thought of that happening to Sarah made his stomach turn. She would bleed. She would scream. A trail of blood led from Bess's mangled corpse up the paddock, into the hills. Like breadcrumbs. Like they were daring him to follow them, or they didn't care if he did because, hell, he was just a kid, wasn't he? A big kid, maybe, but no bigger than any one of them. But there was no question of not following. Morgan ran inside, snatched a tin of creamed rice from its hiding place and ate it with his fingers while he found a good sharp knife, a torch and a precious handful of spare batteries and pulled on his boots and jacket. Perhaps they knew how to lay a trap. Perhaps they would butcher a goat and maybe do worse to a boy not yet a man who came hunting them. But he was not letting them take his sister. He found the hammer where it had fallen in the grass and set off in the fading light after the blood trail. The ghost sighed along in his wake, quieter now, but no less mocking. Night was coming. He tried not to cry. Dad would have been disappointed if he'd cried. Morgan knew where they were long before he saw or heard them. Their fire lit up the hillside and cut through the trees, and even from a distance Morgan figured they must have made camp near the waterfall. That was a good spot, he remembered, from summers gone by. A good swimming hole, a creek deep enough to ride rubber tyres down the rapids for a few hundred metres. Hours of fun. Dad didn't let them play near the creek in winter. Creep up on you as fast as the rain can fall, he'd say. Maybe the kidnappers hoped that the noise of the waterfall would drown out the sounds of their cooking and talking. But what use was that if their fire would lead the dead straight to them? Hadn't they ever learnt how to make a fire that no one could see from a distance? And even if they had hidden their fire, the rich hot smell of cooking meat on the wind would be drawing everything towards them, living and dead alike. Dad had taught Morgan all this stuff. Life and death, son, he'd said. Life and death. Morgan moved carefully, climbing from branch to branch so as to avoid any tripwires they might have laid in the path. It's what Dad would have done. It was only when he got close enough that he heard the sound of vomiting. At first he thought it was a ghost messing with his head, 
but as he edged nearer, he saw through the branches a figure hunched over by the creek, shoulders heaving with spasms, pale white fluid spilling from his mouth into the water. Slipping from one branch to another, he saw that of the three men he had seen in the paddock, the second was lying on his side near the fire, curled up with his arms wrapped round his stomach. On the far side of the clearing, where Morgan had spent so many summer afternoons enjoying the sun, the third man, the big one with the hairy arms, sat with his back to a twisted manneker, Sarah wrapped up against his chest like a shield, or a talisman. He was pale, even in the firelight, and Morgan thought that his hands were shaking. A slow smile crept over his face, though he was careful not to show his teeth, so white in the darkness. He and Sarah had been drinking goat's milk for as long as he could remember. It was something their mother had wanted, because just as Dad hadn't trusted people, Mum had never trusted the commercial food chain, and Morgan and Sarah were products of all their parents' fears. It took time to adjust to goat's milk, and Dad had always been fussy about them cleaning out the buckets and boiling the glass jugs. That had always been Morgan's chore, and maybe he hadn't been so meticulous about it since Dad had been gone. Milk might have tasted a bit odd lately, but neither he nor Sarah had got sick. Farm kids were tough. The intruders, he supposed, weren't so hardy. Bess would have her revenge, at least. Morgan crouched, hunted with his fingers for a rock, found one. He had always been a good shot, but even so he couldn't guarantee hitting the big guy in the head without hurting Sarah too. Not with the ghosts whispering in his ears. But the guy by the creek was getting up, slowly. Morgan fingered the hammer. The rock flew. Morgan was sprinting across the clearing before the stone caught his targets on the side of the head and spun him around. There was a splash as he hit the water. Morgan leapt over the fire where Bess's haunch sizzled and smoked. With a grunt of effort and a crack of smashing bone, Morgan slammed the hammer into the big guy's temple. Sarah screamed as blood and bone sprayed over her face, the tree, the mud. Run, Sarah! Morgan yelled, raising the hammer for another blow. Sarah scrambled out from under the big man's body, and for a few seconds Morgan couldn't see her. All he saw was the blood, the rage. Never could be sure if a guy's dead when he hit him in the head, Dad had told him. Might just be stunned. Best to be sure. The way his target flopped into the mud suggested he was probably a goner, but the ghosts kept whispering his father's words back at him. Bastards had killed Bess, had traumatised Sarah. That deserved a few extra whacks. Morgie! He spun around, one man lurching forward with his arms outstretched. If not for the livid set of his jaws, Morgan might have mistaken him for one of the dead. But he was slow, and Morgan was fast, with the ghosts whipping him around on their unseen wings. A hammer strike to the knee, a howl of pain... An overhead swing and the satisfying crack of vertebrae, crunch of a body falling. The hammer rising and descending, arcs of blood glittering in the firelight. Sarah screams. Morgan turned away from the carnage, breathing hard. Not again. It was like one of the ghost's nightmare fragments, a broken sliver from earlier in the day. His sister wrapped up in a monster's arms. Seriously? He screamed at the intruder, the only one that remained and stalked forward, the hammer floating in his fingers. Can't you bastards just leave a little girl alone and fight for yourselves? The man was dripping with muddy water, his skin pale, hands shaking, blood marring his face and neck. He stared in horror at the boy, barely a teenager but bigger than most kids his age, spattered with the detritus of the kidnappers' erstwhile companions. Blood, bone, brain. Hey, boy, let's you and me make a deal. What do you reckon? Let my sister go and I won't smash your skull open, Morgan warned, circling. 
That's the only deal you're going to get, and I won't say it again. Dad would have been disappointed. Don't waste your breath talking to dead men, he would have said. But Morgan wasn't his dad. All he had was Sarah, and the ghosts, and from the way the kidnapper had his arm jammed around Sarah's throat, he knew well enough that it would only take a quick snap backwards to break her neck. She was still so little, so vulnerable, not big like Morgan, not big enough to learn to fight and survive on her own. All she knew how to do was run, and running from the living wasn't enough. The waterfall was behind Morgan now, his quarry turning in a muddy puddle between him and the fire. His plan was forming. It was risky, but better than nothing. He tensed to strike. Then he saw the sudden wideness in Sarah's eyes. She was looking past his shoulder, into the firelit shadows behind him, towards a creek. He didn't dare turn, but he heard the sloughing slop of footsteps. The dead had arrived. He leapt, and hoped that Sarah would do what she did best. Run. His enemy had seen them too, and the sight had frozen him for long enough that he wasn't anticipating Morgan's attack. The hammer arced up and cracked open his eye socket, man and boy going down, Morgan throwing his weight into the fall and dropping the bigger man on the fire. Sparks exploded in a cloud of ash as Morgan rolled, and his adversary screamed, the kidnapper's clothes bursting into flame. It wasn't too late, Morgan thought as he rolled to his knees, scanning the clearing. The dead were strong, but slow. He and Sarah could outrun them. He came to his feet, blinded by the fire for a moment, distracted by the man rolling and screaming in the mud in front of him, and tried to spot Sarah. Hope like hell that she had run was deep in the bush. He could find her. He knew where she liked to hide. It wasn't too late. Please, God, don't let it be too late. Time slowed down, thick like mud, twisted like a knife in his gut. There were two of them, dead things that stumbled up the muddy bank, their mouths hanging open, dark water spilling over black tongues. Sarah stood between Morgan and the zombies, shivering. His legs wouldn't move. He couldn't look away from the rotted faces shambling towards him. Dad? He almost choked on the word. Mum? His mother, or what was left of her, she had been missing much longer than Dad, crawled towards the body that lay near the fire, ignoring the burning man and her own daughter who stood, quivering before her. Her eyes were rotted holes, nothing but smell driving her towards a hot reek of blood. Fingers like talons found the rents in the fallen man's broken skull, her face disappearing into his mire of soiled hair as she fed. Morgan forced his eyes away, looked at Dad, whose sluggish steps brought him ever closer to his daughter. He could almost believe that his dad didn't want to reach her, but he couldn't stop himself. Daddy, Sarah whispered, biting her fingers. Morgan wanted to move, wanted to step between Sarah and Dad, wanted to break the spell, but for another terrible moment he stood, horror-struck, the ghosts roaring in his ears like a storm trying to tear his world apart. Look after yourself first, then your family, Dad would have said. Trust no one. You couldn't leave without Mum, could you? Morgan said, refusing to look back at the thing his mother had become. For a moment his father paused as if listening, and his eyes, weeping puss and mud, turned towards Morgan. They said that it took time for the dead to truly die. For a while, maybe a few days, maybe a week or two, some part of the brain lived on, trapped inside a body rotting on its bones. So maybe Dad could hear. That's why you left Sarah and me alone, 
to find her. You broke your own rules, Dad. And now you've come back for us. Is that it, Dad? Morgan thought that his father paused, that he met his eye, that a flicker of the man he had once been looked out from behind those rotten, sunken eyes. Daddy, Sarah breathed again, and Morgan realised she was crying. She never ran to him when she was crying, only to Dad, if she could. Morgie was just her big, boogery brother, but if Dad was there... Sarah, run! They were slow, he was fast, the ghosts were fast, the hammer was fast. To get Sarah, he would have to run towards Dad. But he never run towards the dead, no matter what. All it took was a scratch and you joined the dead. Not straight away, but maybe by morning, maybe by tomorrow night. A stumbling corpse like Dad, chewing on brains like Mum. Sarah started walking towards Dad's outstretched arms. Morgan knew that he could still grab her, still run, maybe not far, but far enough. She'd scream and cry, but they'd keep going, they'd find the boat, they'd get away from here. There was no point waiting for Dad any more. Dad had broken the rules, and breaking the rules got you dead. The rules. Look after yourself first. Dad lifted Sarah in his arms, those big, strong, loving arms, up and over his head, like he always did. Sarah would always love Dad more than she loved her big booger. Daddy! Sarah squealed. Mum lifted her face towards Morgan, cheeks raw and bloody, teeth bared. Her tongue lolled, black and stinking, from her jaws. Dad swung Sarah over his head, caught her like he always did. Morgie, Daddy's back! Morgan turned and ran fire-blind into the night, the ghosts giving him strength and speed through the tears. Look after yourself first. That's the rules. He didn't stop when the screaming began. That was Dan Raybart's Children of the Tide, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English, and most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children, and despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dopey, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the golden pen winner for the Writers of the Future, Volume 32, in 2016, and his fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with it at mattdovey.com or follow along on Facebook or Twitter and both as at mattdoveywriter. Links will be in the show notes. That will be our show for the evening. Children of the Night, visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our podcast. Our show is produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.